You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Tara June Winch published her award-winning book, Swallow the Air, at the tender age of 22. A Wiradjuri woman who grew up in the south coast of New South Wales, she dropped out of school at 17 and hitchhiked her way around Australia. Tara has lived and worked in New York and made Paris a home base as a single mum with her daughter. She's just published her latest book, The Yield, a story about a woman who returns home to Australia after the death of her grandfather. Hi, Tara. Welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Thanks for having me. You contributed to a book published last year called Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia. What was it like for you growing up as an Indigenous girl on the New South Wales coast in the 80s? I think life was really simple, if I was to put it in one word. Simple. We were lucky enough to grow up on your little housing commission street, but it was right on the beach. Um, So we spent lots of our childhood... um, collecting pippies and taking our dog along the beach and finding hiding spots in um, in the dunes and building cubbies and just simple, really, really simple. I'm the youngest of four um, and my two older brothers were four years older than me. So I was the, the annoying kid that was trying to chase them around and <laughs> and I wanted to be involved with everything they were doing tomboyish um and it was just fun simple we had bikes and then we just made our own way in the world and made our own entertainment I guess and adventure do you think that contributed to the fact that at 17, which sounds like a very young age to me, um, do you think that independence contributed to that idea of travel and how you hitchhiked around Australia? Because it kind of sounds like you didn't stop travelling once you started. It seems like it, but we're really settled. We have a really normal family now and a complete <laughs> routine and like, yeah, we're completely not moving where we are now. But uh, I guess I was having a hard time as a teenager and school just didn't fit me at that age and I was really struggling with um, who I was, I guess. I guess like any teenager goes through that stage. But for me, it kind of was, I knew it was breaking my heart and I didn't feel like I could really, I really could find the answers where I grew up. And um, just decided that I was going to leave. And weirdly, my parents were okay with that. (laughs) I don't know how I convinced them because my (laughs) daughter will never, ever hitchhike. (laughs) Um, And off I I went pretty much. Um, I spent a lot of time in WA. I worked at the vineyards in Margaret River and then at a coffee shop on Rottnest Island um, at a cafe up in the Pilbara and I was basically traveling because I was had that huge question who am I who am I in the context of my family as the fairest you know, fairest kid I was really I'm really fair-skinned compared to my siblings who am I in my community in my school I couldn't work out so who am I in the context of my country 
and who are my siblings and who's my father as well. And so I went to communities, I went to small towns and I had that question. Yeah. Did you find the answer? I think it's a question we all have and we 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 investigate or we investigate that our whole lives and it changes in the context but I got a I guess I got an idea of who I was within Australia and that was Swallow the Air that became Swallow the Air that became May's story the character from the my first novel and you're based in Paris now or in Actually, France? we left Paris because we couldn't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> um, as most parents that I knew, we they their child had the one bedroom in the apartment and we had the double bed in the lounge room, had dinner at the coffee table and would have to walk through the one bedroom that we had to get to the bathroom. At, we just realised as my daughter, when my daughter was about seven or eight, that because oh, I met my husband actually in Paris um, and we realised that, yeah, we've got to get out of here. Mm. So we're in the countryside. We're uh, four hours' drive from Paris in the southwest in the Loire-Atlantic region. and sounds uh, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it sounds nice. It rolls off the tongue because it's French, you know, yes. but it's just a regular old small village 20 minutes outside of a city called Nantes, which is actually a cool city, and it's where the author Jules Verne is from. Wow. Yeah. So I've heard First Nations people speak about the feeling of being on country, like it's a spiritual connection. Is that a difficult part of being a traveller? You you kind of found more of an idea about who you were when you travelled around Australia. Now you're far from country. How is that for you? I think... Uh, because I didn't grow up on country, I grew up in saltwater country, not on Longgrass country in western New South Wales, on Nuremberg, which is Wiradjuri country. So I think, and the same, that's something that May deals with in Swallow the Air. She is trying to find her belonging off country and on country. And so when I was researching Swallow the Air, actually, I would go back to country, I'd meet relatives, distant relatives that I'd never met before and and question everything that happened and what it was like to grow up there. And I did a one-day course in the Wiradjuri language in a little community centre outside Wagga. And I had a little A4 yellow thin dictionary that had just come out the year before. This was in 2004. And it was written by Dr Uncle Stan Grant Sr., and a linguist called Dr. John Rudder. And it was a revitalization of the Wiradjuri language. And I used that to incorporate a couple of Wiradjuri words into Swallow the Air. So there's a word in Swallow the Air, for example, is bila, which means river. And I knew after Swallow the Air came out that I was what language did to me being on country was really incredible it made me connect more with the land and made me understand my culture and what happened to my father and my father's family a lot more and it gave me this intense you know sort of balm for the the wound of questioning and so I knew then that I wanted to do another book that would incorporate more language 
and I guess I just didn't know it would take 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you mentioned that writing the book itself um, was two years, but obviously the ideas were percolating in your head before that. Um, I'm kind of fascinated. You, you're such a wordsmith. It's a beautifully written book, and you're very expressive um, in the English language. You've kind of touched on what it meant to be using the Wiradjuri, Wiradjuri language while you were on country. What's it like as a author, like as a writer, to be able to delve back into that language and incorporate it into this story? Um, it was hard to work out how I would do that, how I could structure a, basically a, a bilingual text. I knew I wasn't fluent enough to actually have one page in English and then another page in Wiradjuri. Um, and so this idea of the dictionary, which I thought, oh, God, no one's going to go for that. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Came to me and it took, a fa- it took a fair few months, maybe about nine months going back and forth and how it would actually be structured. But uh, the experience, I guess... In a way, the, that that narrative thread that goes through the book, where the dictionary is and where language is, it was sort of the easiest thing to write because those voices are in my head. It's it's my grandfather's voice and it's my father's voice and it's also that internal voice that you have inside you that says, that kind of directs you in your life on how to live good. Yeah, whether you listen to it or not, it's there. And so, in some ways, it was the easiest thing to write but it was also the hardest because of the emotional toil of how much it broke my heart and how after a couple of word entries or little stories that Poppy Albert Gondawindi would tell I was emotionally you know drained and overwhelmed and also trying to write it in a light way trying to deal with these horrific um, instances these horrific histories and deal with it in a pal- present it in a palatable way for the reader. It meant that I needed to know everything. I needed to know the the ugliest of the ugliest, and I carried the burden of of all that of the horror. And I I gave the reader just enough so they knew the story. But I feel like I carried so much of so much of the, that pain. Does that make sense? Yeah. You held it back. Yeah. So you I gave a little back. bit, but you held a lot back to protect the people who were reading in a way. Yeah, and to protect the flow of a story because otherwise I didn't want it to be, not dogmatic, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to completely break the reader's heart um, to smithereens. But yeah. Isn't that interesting that that's our history? And for a lot of people reading a book like this in Australia, it's still a history that people don't really accept. I don't know if you feel the same way, um, but in terms of uh, back in the 90s and the early 2000s, this idea of the black-armed uh, version of history, it's history, it's what happened, and right. yet still Australians find it very hard to accept the full extent of how bad it was. Right. Because I'm talking about the book is basically about... 500 acres of land and what happened in 500 acres of land beside a river over the past 150 years and then of course there's stories from thousands and thousands of years ago as well incorporated but it 
I focus back on those 500 acres and that's why there's another narrative thread that is written from the point of view of Reverend Greenleaf who opened the missionary on those 500 acres and he's writing a letter in 1915 reflecting on the work he's done and and the reason for his mission and the reason for him denying um, the people, the local people, the mission residents their mother tongue. And so what I did is made him, I sort of turned the antagonist on its head and made him think almost that when you're reading you can think he's good because maybe he, that's a question that goes through the book. Was he good? Was he bad? Was he an idealist? What was his intent? You know, and he's questioning all those things within himself. What I wanted to do is present to the reader the antagonist and make him as light and and God-filled and good as possible. And so I could show a reader who was skeptical, who says it was for their own good, it was for their own benefit, so they can see even if he was good, it still turned out bad. This is still a bad story. Mm. There's There's no denying, yeah? The time for saying oh, we didn't know, or it was, it was for their own good. It's That time's over, you know? 2019, NAIDOC week, the International Year of Indigenous Languages with the UN. The time's over, yeah. Do you feel, because you're um, quite far away, I'm sure you feel that now coming back to Australia, just the tyranny of distance between Europe and here. Um, have you noticed over that time over the time you've been away, Australians changing in relation to that history and in relation to that understanding? It's difficult because when when we say Australians, it's so many different types of people. And so you can see this renaissance in, in people that go to literary festivals, for example, or that buy books. But there's so much work to do. We've got so far to go. And... One of the things with this book, yes, it's out, it's in print, it's someone can hold it in their hands, but I could have kept writing. When I look at it, I kind of feel a bit disappointed. Really? Yeah, because I think, well, why didn't I talk about um, deaths in custody? Why didn't I address the issue of youth suicide? And then I have to reckon with myself and say, I'm trying to, I'm trying to write a novel, a story that people can enjoy purely as a novel. <coughs> But I'm also trying to draw attention to the importance of language and importance of language revitalization and having languages incorporated into school curriculums from an early age. There's a school program called Ella, actually, and preschool children, three, four-year-olds, can have a choice to learn Italian or Mandarin. There's no reason why we can't incorporate local Indigenous languages into those programs. And imagine 20 years from now, the, all the country, all Australians, have grown up with a few with words, with language, with an understanding of that these are attached to the country that they live on, that they've grown up on. We could change how Australians perceive themselves. It's so essential. So, and there's another element to language revitalisation on community, is that it's such a great tool for rehabilitation um, 
for drug rehabilitation and for alcohol, obviously, rehabilitation and also as a balm for depression to get people to connect back to country. And part of that work is connecting with language. So hopefully I can um, do the work outside of the novel to make people pay attention to the importance of language and maybe there'll be some effect where I did somehow write about youth suicide and I did somehow write about the over rate of incarceration of our First Nations people. Yeah, there's a flow-on effect from understanding the importance of language, is what you're saying. Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful book, um, but before I wrap up, we are talking to parents um, and I'm curious to know your daughter, um, essentially, would you say she's been raised in Europe? I don't know your entire <coughs> entire history. Uh, she, We've been in France since she was five and she just turned six right after we arrived. And so you can say six. And now she's 13. So half half in New York, Australia, Nigeria and travelling and half in France. And the interesting thing about bringing it back to language is I watched her mother tongue change, actually. French is her, now her dominant language. That's the language she would prefer to read her novels in, watch her films, dream, think. Her thought, her that language inside her is French now. That was super fascinating because language can change. It changes the personality and the outlook on the world too. It was super, yeah, that was fascinating. It's a different understanding and a different way of, um, I think, until you know a language, you can't know a culture, which is kind of interesting for me as a non-Indigenous person to know that um, really how am I ever going to know the Indigenous culture, many cultures, without knowing the language? Completely. That's all I'm trying to say. Hmm. Uh, the whole idea of everywhere where we've travelled, before I've gone to another country, one of the first things I'll do is pick up a few words in the local language able to say bonjour or in Hindi say you do that for two reasons you do it because it's practical it's easier to travel that way and you also do it because out of respect and we have to remember as Australians we're on someone else's country it just makes complete sense to learn a few of the words Tara it's been such a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much for coming in thanks for having me that's Tara June Winch. Her latest book is called The Yield. It's a beautiful book. We'll put links to where you can get a copy in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced by Debbie Ning and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email us at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.